So welcome back to the Procedure Course podcast and I'm Mike Noonan and today we've got with us Nicola Ewan who I'll let introduce herself. She's going to talk about the resuscitative hysterotomy. So Nicola, welcome. Thank you. Thanks Mike. I'm delighted to be involved in this course. My background is I'm an obstetrician. I have previously been director of the emergency department at the Royal Women's Hospital where I became quite actively involved in maternal resuscitation and developing some guidelines. As a result of that, I actually became an ALS instructor. One of the procedures that is always under debate in the maternal resuscitation field is around the area of resuscitative hysterotomy. And that's really what we're here today to talk about. Personally, I've been involved in two cases that have had a resuscitative hysterotomy, of which there was one successful and one unsuccessful resuscitation. The one that did have return of circulation, it was almost immediate after the hysterotomy was performed. And I'm happy to talk about that more. And I think that's where we'll start, because the question I have as a non-expert obstetrician is really where would I encounter this procedure and where would it be indicated? And so maybe based on that case that you've encountered, if you could just run through the case and how the procedure was flagged to be appropriate. Yeah, so I think to, to answer that question, we'll probably go back a little bit. So what we know from the literature is that survival rates in women who are pregnant and have a cardiac arrest are usually better than the general population, and that's possibly a reflection of their better pre-morbid state. The other contributing factors to their improved survival may be some physiological protection that's conferred to them as a result of being pregnant, and also the high instance of witness collapse that we've got in these women, and that was certainly the case with the successful resuscitation I was involved in was actually a patient who presented with shortness of breath and obvious signs of cardiac failure at 38 weeks gestation. So the primary goal of really of a resuscitative hysterotomy is emptying the uterus, and that's, that's irrespective of the gestational age or the fetal condition at that stage. And what we're aiming for is for maternal resuscitative efforts to be enhanced as a result of the uterine decompression, hence the term resuscitative hysterotomy is, is what we're talking about. So if we just reflect on the case that I've had, we can sort of draw out the most common causes of cardiac arrest in this group. The most common cause that we would see would be hemorrhage. A second most common cause would probably be amniotic fluid embolus. And following down from that, probably heart failure, sepsis, anesthetic complications, and then further down the track, trauma would probably be the most common causes that we'd see. And as I said, the case that I had was around a patient who had peripartum cardiomyopathy but presented with symptoms very consistent with cardiac failure late in pregnancy and deteriorated shortly prior to a planned emergency cesarean section. It was almost on induction of anesthesia that she lost circulation and CPR needed to be initiated. Now maternal survival in these instances is somewhere between 17 and 60 percent in the literature and fetal survival definitely depends on the gestation, with up to 80% of the fetuses surviving, with a, with a significant number of those being neurologically intact. The case that we had was actually in theatre when she arrested optimal conditions, really, for a resuscitation and proceeded with a caesarean section while the patient was having CPR, which illustrates some of the challenges of doing that procedure in a patient that's having CPR that I don't think can always be appreciated unless it's actually simulated. The baby was actually born and resuscitated well and has actually survived in extremely good condition with no neurological outcome as a result of being born in that situation. The mother on emptying of the uterus had an almost immediate return of circulation and along with it came the inevitable coagulopathy that comes as a result of that and that was certainly a good eye-opener as to how post-resuscitation care needs to be directed in these women as well. And from that case 
obviously, um, as an obstetrician, this is something that you do regularly as far as delivering a fetus, but the overall process, what learning points did you take away yourself from that case? I think the learning points we took away was how effective the caesarean section was for maternal resuscitation. While it's taught that it's immediate, I don't think until you've actually seen it, you appreciate how dramatic that maternal response can be. I think the other things that are challenging is doing a caesarean section in a patient that's actually physically moving as a result of CPR. I don't think I'd really appreciate how tricky that can be. The other thing is that primarily the field is a bloodless field. Normally a caesarean section is not a dry procedure. And one of the things that comes out when you're doing it in a resuscitation scenario is that it's effectively a bloodless field. And that certainly presented a different scenario to one that we're used to. The return of circulation brought with it a coagulopathy that was quite profound and certainly impacted on how we responded to uterine agony and bleeding post-procedure. And I think we need to be very cognizant in planning for that side of the procedure. Did you actually use things like oxytocin in that resuscitation or post-resuscitation for this patient? Good question. So we actually had, because we had, of course, optimal conditions being in theatre, we had all all the normal oxytocics available and she received all of those. What she also had done at the time was was a prophylactic B-Lynch suture, which is a compressive suture of the uterus, basically to compress the uterus as a way of combating atony. The reasons for that really are that at that point, getting that patient into a post-recess care environment was imperative and whatever we can do quickly as surgeons to expedite sort of closing the abdomen was really sort of optimal. And so quick sutures, big sutures, closing the abdomen, doing what we can to minimise bleeding, but getting that patient to an environment where she can receive appropriate post-recess care. So a really interesting case. And I suppose, again, for me as a non-surgeon, stepping outside of that environment that you're in, in in a theatre, and I suppose a reasonably controlled environment, there may be cases where myself or one of my colleagues may encounter this case in the community, in a smaller hospital, pre-hospital in some cases. Just running through where you see the indications for this procedure are, maybe with your ALS hat on as well, and where you might see this actually stepping forward. Yes, I think it's probably one of these critical things that there's been lots of debate over the last 30 years about what used to be called perimortem caesarean section is now called resuscitative hysterotomy. And and essentially the one point that I'd probably make is that time is of the essence in deciding to do this procedure. There was quite a lot of literature in the 1980s about the concept of a four-minute rule around doing a perimortem caesarean section, and that originally arose because of the theoretical benefit of being delivered that quickly to minimise ischemic neurological damage in the fetus. I think that still, to, to some degree, hasn't actually been confirmed as being four minutes, and I think there's certainly a lot of literature that suggests that fetal survival may well be outside of that range. The reality of the four-minute rule is that it is quite unachievable, even there's been a couple of quite big studies, one that was done um, in Scandinavia, that there was a training and simulation exercises for it. But even doing that, they couldn't get more than 7% of their hysterotomies done within those first four minutes. So it seems to be extraordinarily difficult to achieve that. The point that we're trying to drive now is that we don't want to endorse time frames because we don't want that to be a barrier to people performing a resuscitative hysterotomy when those time frames aren't achieved. And instead, what we're doing is giving clinicians in various environments a tool to support their resuscitation attempts of a mother in this situation. One thing that was noted during a a 30-year review of perimortem caesarean section that was published in 2005 is that in approximately 30% of cases, the delivery for the baby actually resulted in return of circulation for the mother, and I think that's becoming an increasing driver for teaching this procedure. 
in no cases in that study was the delivery detrimental to the mother's condition. And I think those are probably two really key points for us to take forward. And really what we're talking about now is what's the right candidate to do it. What we're identifying is a woman who is more than 20 weeks pregnant where there is a maternal cardiac arrest would be the identified scenario and where there is not an otherwise identifiable reversible cause that we are moving rapidly to thinking about hysterotomy as a way of supporting other maternal resuscitative efforts. Great. I think that frames a lot of the previous talk around this procedure. As you rightly said, the change in terminology from perimortem C-section to resuscitative hysterotomy. And, and for me as an ALS provider, that's, there's very few things in, in any ALS process that we go through where we can change outcomes that significantly. So uh, I think that's a really important thing to take away from this for me. What we know is that as much as possible, the benefits to this procedure are as fast as we can do it will we'll support your efforts. And I think that's partly due to the dramatic physiological changes that occur as a result of doing this. And just to sort of touch on those briefly, I guess, in, in terms of what effect doing this procedure has on the maternal physiology, you get some dramatic improvements. You get, obviously, that uterine compression of the IVC means that you're significantly improving your cardiac preload as a result of emptying the uterus. But what you're also doing is providing an autotransfusion of uterine blood into the circulation. It's almost like giving a blood transfusion at that point. And in turn, that can be up to 500 mils back into the maternal circulation, which gives them an immediate benefit. It also enables your CPR efforts to be far more effective. We know that we've touched briefly around CPR in the pregnant woman and how challenging that can be. And I think we know that CPR in general provides some output, but it's nowhere near what normal output would be. And I think we need to be cognizant that in a pregnant woman, that's even worse again. CPR is providing 30% of your cardiac output in a non-pregnant patient. And in a pregnant patient, that probably drops to only 10% of that. So we're probably looking at about 3% of circulation. So those are really the, the benefits is you're going to dramatically improve your, your CPR. You're also going to improve your ventilatory efforts as well because you've moved this often quite significant barrier to your diaphragmatic movement as a result of your ventilation. And I think the take-home for me with this change in terminology as well is that really this is a procedure for the mother and the baby as a secondary to the resuscitation efforts for the mother. Absolutely, and that's definitely the message that we want to drive home. So very interesting background to this procedure and how we might perform it come secondary to that, but running through the technique, and we'll obviously have some written material to support this, can you just explain in brief how you would suggest a non-specialist would perform this procedure? Yeah, so really thinking about the emergency situation that this will inevitably occur in, it is a case of working with the best tool really to assist with that. The delivery should be really thought about as benefiting a pregnant woman when she's more than 20 weeks gestation. And that's essentially, for all intents and purposes, a uterus that is the same height as the umbilicus. So if they've got a uterus that is at the umbilicus or above, they will benefit from a hysterotomy to assist in restoring maternal circulation. I think in terms of performing it, the essential equipment effectively is a knife and that what we're looking at is doing a rapid incision through the layers into the uterus. Now, that is an incision that starts at the umbilicus and goes down to the symphysis pubis. It goes through the layers of skin, subcutaneous tissue, muscle, and then through the parietal peritoneum and the first organ that will be encountered at that point will be the pregnant uterus. 
the consistency of the uterus at that point will depend on how pregnant they are, but it's a fairly obvious thing to encounter and it's not difficult to find. On that point, I know reading other literature around this, there has been some talk around two things, either doing a a larger midline incision where you start at the ziphy sternum and, and go down to the pubic symphysis, or alternatively doing what you may classically do as a as an obstetrician as your approach. What are your thoughts around those two different approaches um, than the one you've described? Okay, I think we'll sort of talk about the first one first, which is about making a larger incision. It seems so sensible that if you're going to do a procedure, you make the biggest hole possible. I think that we need to be mindful that we may actually be making life a little bit harder for ourselves at that point. Certainly in a term abdomen where the uterus is up to the diaphragm, theoretically going all the way up to the diaphragm will confer some benefit. However, I think the advantages need to be thought about as to what we're trying to do in terms of accessing the uterus. The risk of making a big incision in someone who's got a more preterm abdomen is going to be around accessing an organ in the body, primarily bowel, before we encounter the uterus. It's going to add a potentially complicated surgical field. I think in terms of incising at the site of the uterus, what we're trying to do is get down to that uterus as fast as possible without encountering anything other than the uterus and making that initial incision. To go to where you were asking about the fan and steel incision, I think that that certainly is a preferred technique of most obstetricians purely because that's something that we've done hundreds and thousands of times before. I still think that there is extremely good evidence that when we're teaching the procedure in terms of access to the uterus, the midline confers greater access to the uterus. It will also greatly facilitate in delivery of a preterm baby. And it is the most appropriate selective choice of procedure when we're talking about doing a resuscitative hysterotomy. Let's say for argument's sake, you and I were in a resuscitation together. We hadn't discussed this previously and you decided that you wanted to do a fan and steel incision. What should be my approach, do you think, to, to that discussion? at that point? I think we often find ourselves in ALS resuscitation situations where someone in the room has got a particular set of skills and I think at that point recognising that someone comes with a particular set of skills that may actually mean that they do the procedure in a slightly different way is absolutely allowed to be mentioned but I think we would really sort of expect that an obstetrician would do the procedure that they feel they could do the quickest. We've got to the point where we've opened the uterus and at that stage where delivering the baby how would you facilitate that in the process so i think when we've incised the uterus the first thing that we do as an obstetrician is really reach into the uterus to push the baby up through the incision and depending on the gestation and the size of the baby you're delivering this can be very easy or it can be a little bit more challenging but effectively the manner of the delivery is really pushing something up through the incision that can then be used to deliver the baby rather than waiting for something to come up into the incision itself. And so we've delivered the baby and at that stage obviously we've still got the baby connected to the mother. Disconnect them. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the important steps at this point, particularly if there is a team there ready for neonatal resuscitation, is to disconnect the mother and the baby. And cord clamping and cutting is the obvious most appropriate next step to do. The cord can be clamped in a variety of ways. And as long as there's a cord clamp on the fetal side that it means that the baby is not going to exsanguinate through its cord, that needs to be clamped with something and then cut to disconnect the two. The clamp on the mother's side is hugely beneficial, but not quite as essential as the one on the baby side. And so assuming that we've done that, what do we do with the placenta? Should we deliver the placenta? So the placenta should absolutely be delivered. There's there's a couple of factors to that. The first is that we're hoping at this point that we're going to get some return of circulation. As I've already mentioned, one of the things that became apparent in the case that we had 
was that the amount of bleeding became an issue as a result of coagulopathy and, and having a placenta left behind contributes to that risk. Delivering the placenta certainly means that we can minimise that risk for the mother. The reality of it is in a lot of cases the placenta will spontaneously deliver through your incision. There are ways of facilitating that and one is the use of an oxytocic drug. The most common drug used there is syntocinon that can be administered intravenously. The other option is to actually reach in and grab the placenta and pull the placenta out, effectively a manual removal, and that would also be completely appropriate as a way of expediting that. But all attempts should be made to try and remove the placenta in this situation. Would you um, advocate for giving syntocin if the resuscitation efforts were still ongoing? We have to weigh up the benefits and the risks at this point. I would still be very hopeful that we're going to get return of maternal circulation and I think one of the identified risks will be bleeding afterwards and giving oxytocic as a way of, of providing some prophylaxis over that. The other issue is that the uterus is often quite atonic in um, resuscitation effort, partly due to the poor circulation and giving oxytocic is one way to combat that and address that. Weighing against that is it is a drug given in an emergency situation and does it have any disadvantage to the mother at that point? Oxytocic in larger doses is associated with maternal hypotension, which would obviously not be advantageous. However, the doses that we're talking about are really around 10 units, and I think we'd feel pretty confident that's not going to have a significant impact on maternal hemodynamics. Assuming the resuscitation efforts are ongoing, as we always would through this process, and we regain maternal circulation, what would you suggest are the next steps for the, the non-expert provider in that setting? So I think if we think about the scenario being a non-expert provider in a setting that is other than an operating theatre, I think one of the key steps is to make an attempt to close the uterus at that point. The reason being is that a uterus that's left open will bleed, and it will bleed both from the edges of the muscle, but it will also bleed from the cavity. And I think we've already addressed that that's quite a significant risk for the mother at this stage. So I think closing the uterus in, in a quick and efficient way is probably going to expedite her sort of journey into post-resuscitation care, but it's also going to minimise some of the risks that may become apparent later. So I'd advocate at that stage for using a, a continuous locking suture for the length of the uterine incision as a way of opposing those muscle layers and, and bringing the uterus together to minimise that risk for the mother at that stage. Closing the abdomen is probably not anywhere near as important in terms of minimising risk for the mother at that stage. And would you give further um, oxytocics at that stage? Or? Yeah, so I think we still need to reflect on, on the benefits and risks of, of medication at that stage. I think if we've got a mother that's got a return of circulation and we've got the threat of coagulopathy and bleeding, I think we need to look at what benefits there are at that stage to using additional oxytocics. I think there's definitely some benefit. The, the obvious choice of oxytocic that we use at that stage is ergometrin. Ergometrin does have some interesting effects on the maternal hemodynamics and it does cause vascular constriction and hypertension, which is often not a particular risk in immediate post-recess care. But I think that we need to be mindful of the benefits and risks of the medications that we use, but I would certainly advocate for attempting to minimise the risk of bleeding from the uterus at that stage. The other thing that, of course, we'd consider at that stage is antibiotics administered as a prophylactic step at that point. I think it's probably worth mentioning, and we are certainly focusing on the mother, but at this stage, during the handoff of, of the baby, that has actually gone to the most appropriate provider. That may be someone who is trained in BLS and, and actually goes through a process of resuscitation to their best efforts at that, at that point as well. Moving on, we've covered a lot of ground and we've covered a lot of the, the processes and planning. We've also talked a bit about post-resuscitation care and, and post-procedural care. Are there any other pointers or pitfalls that we haven't covered that you'd like to bring out? 
Yeah, I think if we just sort of review what really some of the pertinent points of what we've already discussed are, I think really what we're driving home at this point is thinking about the mother in these um, situations, not the fetus. And I think drawing attention to that is quite a change of direction, but I think it's a very important one. We're emphasising the need to think fast and move fast, but not to be limited by time in terms of feeling that the procedure is not going to be of benefit to the mother. So I think dispelling the four-minute rule is probably the next thing that's going. I think that what we're also talking about is the patients that would receive benefit from this. And we've identified that in pregnant women where the uterus is above the umbilicus, then delivery is really probably going to confer some advantage within a very early part of the maternal resuscitation process. And I'd suggest that's probably after the first two minutes of CPR with a non-shockable rhythm, that that's the time to start thinking about initiating that procedure. And really, the only barrier that I can see to, to actually proceeding at that point is not having a knife as the essential piece of equipment available. And I think that's probably the thing that needs to be made available as quickly as possible. And on that note, with regard to equipment, is there anything more than a knife that you think is a, is essential kit for, for this procedure? The knife is probably the main one. The other one is probably, we've talked briefly about clamping the cord of the baby. You need something to do that with. And then cutting the cord with a pair of scissors is probably the ideal. In terms of retraction, it's not normally something that's essential. Of course, it's it's nice to have, but it's not an essential part of the procedure at that point. And there's very little other equipment that would be necessary to actually perform this. With your ALS hat on, you're working in a, an appropriately staffed small emergency department. If you had five minutes preparation, you've got a call from the ambulance, you've got a, an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in a, a woman who is 34 weeks pregnant, what would be the, the steps that you'd take in preparing your team and your environment for that procedure? I think it's sort of setting up at that stage that if you've had an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, you want to really get on and do the, the hysterotomy as soon as she hits the deck. So you want to get your kit out. An thoracotomy kit is a completely appropriate place to start in terms of a rapid putting your hands on a set of equipment that's useful and finding the knife as part of that. In terms of setting up your teams, you want to set up a reasonable space for the mother and also a reasonable space for resuscitation of the baby, which should be in a separate area so that you're not sitting on top of each other. In terms of doing the procedure itself, the decisions that need to be made are, is there going to be an advantage to this patient from doing this? And that's a rapid assessment of gestation. You've just told me she's 34 weeks. I've ticked that off. I'm not worried when she comes in about the condition of the baby. And I think the important thing I'd say is not to stop to assess fetal condition. We're not doing it for that reason. And whatever condition the baby is, and you're going to proceed with the hysterotomy anyway. I think the other important thing is to remember that there is a significant impact of displacing the uterus in these attempts of maternal resuscitation. I think that it's important to have someone designated to that as their role. It is a two-hand, one-man job, but it is one that needs to be done as a way of facilitating the maternal resuscitative efforts. The team that are performing the resuscitation for the mother should be reassured that there is no changes to your normal resuscitation pathway. and There's no changes to how we use the drugs in ALS in a pregnant patient except that we're adding in this extra step that we're going to do an operation as well. Otherwise, everything else carries on as normal. And really, it's a Caesar with a knife to skin as soon as that patient hits the emergency department to get the maximum benefit from the procedure. A pure practical question. This patient's in a shockable rhythm and you've shocked them and you're coming up to a rhythm check and this procedure is ongoing. How would you approach that? You would still manage them exactly the same according to the ALS algorithm that you'd otherwise manage. So if that's that you've given a shock and they're in their second cycle of CPR, then you'd proceed to that rhythm check. But I think at that point, we've now had four minutes of CPR and we haven't had return of circulation. At some point, we've got to look for a benefit. It's not common 
the majority of these patients don't have a shockable rhythm. It's far more likely that they're going to have a PEA-type scenario. But the resuscitative efforts on the mother should continue the hysteronomy as a way of supporting those resuscitative efforts. Pregnant women come with a certain set of challenges, not the least the anxieties that they generate in lots of people. And they come with dramatically altered physiology that I think we're all quite aware of and that we need to see that we've got something that's now available to us that may rapidly improve the situation for the mother by making her unpregnant in that scenario. I think we probably need to really raise that awareness and I, and I think it's, it's fantastic that we're equipping people to do that. Well, thank you very much for your time, Nicola. It was You're much welcome. appreciated and um, we'll look forward to seeing you on the course. No worries. Thanks very much, Mike.